with my colleague and close friend Peter Roscombe. Uh, the, the title was billed as tax reform, uh, There's is there a will or there is a will, but is there a way? And it's, it's a really provocative question to ask, but it's a very important question to ask. Let me give you some context. First, over the past decade, I think uh, 26 countries uh, I'm sorry, 26 companies that were headquartered in the United States have uh, inverted. They've moved headquarters overseas. Since 2012, uh, of that 20, uh, 26, 17 have happened since 2012 with another five in the works. And these are the ones we know of publicly, the large, high-profile companies. There are probably others uh, that are smaller. This is a real threat to U.S. competitiveness in the long run. And so, if we look at tax reform, you have to understand what's the politics, what are the driving factors, and what are we going to do about it, and how do we, how do we marshal the forces to get something done. We all know what happened over the past uh, three years as we put forth, put forth uh, the, the draft under the leadership of Chairman Camp. It was a valiant effort to put together a comprehensive tax reform package, but there was one major limiting factor, aside from all the problems within the draft, we didn't have a whole lot of help from the White House. And so the question is, uh, can we get support from the White House over the next year, next several months, to move forward on some element of tax reform? And what are the tests to provoke the administration into working with us? Now, there are a couple of factors. I mentioned the inversion issue and the threatening international um, developments. Uh, and I'll get into that a little further. There's also the side issue of highway funding and a lot of discussion about whether that's going to drive some element of tax reform, and we can talk about that as well. But um, given what I, I've said about the international side and what's happening, and many of you have had deep conversations about this, you're aware, you're aware of it. I think there's an element, uh, there's an opportunity to maybe work with the administration and get some bipartisan movement on international tax. And I, I would say, from my perspective, and this is personal, uh, I think there are other members that may agree with me on this, we, we need to keep this separate from highway spending. The concept of repatriation to fund highways is not a sustainable way to fund highways into the future, and I don't think it's good tax policy. Uh, I believe if we're going to do highway funding, it should really be based on a user fee system that's sustainable. And that's a whole separate discussion. But on international tax, we know that we have the highest corporate tax rate in the world at the statutory level. We also know that because of what's happened internationally, uh, uh, starting with G20 countries, initiating the, this uh, base erosion, profit shifting uh, project uh, being managed by the OECD, we know that that's created a chain reaction internationally among countries that are now moving very rapidly to uh, put themselves in the best competitive position to attract uh, intellectual property, research and development, and so forth. And for a U.S. company now trying to operate in a very competitive global environment, being placed in a position of uh, a major tax disadvantage is just one more element that's hurting us in a serious way. Um, so, I believe the U.S. should lead in this, this, this international discussion about tax policy. And at the same time, we cannot sit still and wait for what's going to happen sometime this fall. 
between September and December when uh, the final uh, report comes out on this. The countries in Europe and others are already rapidly making changes, setting up innovation boxes and attempts to attract intellectual property. The United States needs to do something. And I think that's a compelling argument to move forward. So, I think there's an element, uh, a window of opportunity in international tax to do something. And maybe it, given the situation where our pastor entities are saying, don't give, don't give the corporations a statutory rate reduction without reducing our rates, maybe there's some things we can do, to, uh, such as going to a dividend exemption system, uh, looking at how we transition into that system and there are ways to do it, and incorporating, I believe, very importantly, a robust innovation box to keep America in a position of being a leader in innovation and research and development. Um, let me close by saying, uh, to put it in an even broader context, it is, we set up the international system after World War II, after 1945. We have led that system, and we're, at a, we're in a threatening position now where we're losing that competitive edge, and we are under threat to losing our preeminent position leading that system. The United States needs a foreign economic policy, and it needs to be a coordinated policy. We're, we're engaging in trade policy. We're doing a robust, we have a robust effort ongoing there. We're dragging our feet on tax policy. And if you just take some of the most innovative co companies in the world that are based here in America, our tech companies, and look at this environment that they're dealing with. They have a tax disadvantage on the international stage. They're under regulatory threat. Uh, in Europe and elsewhere, we have to preserve all of that, and it means coordinating a global economic strategy uh, that takes into account all these elements uh, if we're going to continue to lead, continue to maintain the United States preeminent position leading the global international system. So that's where I'm focusing my career in Congress to work in these areas to ensure that we keep our, our edge and our leadership. Uh, and as many of you are on the forefront of that. You're, the, you're really the leading edge, uh, the tip of the spear, so to speak, of our U.S. soft power. I want to make sure that we keep that position and we keep moving forward. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. One of the things that I do so appreciate about Charles is he's a conservative internationalist, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to raise this issue, and um, he's doing it in a way and in, in an environment that's challenging right now, because within our party, there is a, a movement for us to step back and, uh, and to, to say, look, there's not really a way for the U.S. to be effective. But Charles is, is debunking that and very much leading in our conference, and it's a very important voice for us to all hear and to rally around. Um, let me just give you a little bit of a sense of what's going on at the Oversight Subcommittee. Um, I was really, I'm pleased that Jim Renacci, our newest member of the subcommittee, is here, Mike Kelly. Um, he just stepped out. It's like he's not playing fair because if you give him eye contact, he's going to put you in a car that you can't afford, but you'll feel good about it. <laughs> so, um, and then Tom Marino is a great American, and uh, he's here as well. So let me just give you a little bit of a sense. So I, I got the gavel at, at Oversight, and I began to think of this phrase that we conflate into one thing. That is waste, fraud, and abuse. 
you think about how many times you've chucked that out, you know, in an interview or in a general discussion of, or a remedy. How would you fix things in Washington? I'd go after that. Waste, fraud, and abuse. That's what I would do. Well, if you begin to think about it, those are three very distinct concepts. We know what waste is. Waste is the ease with which you spend other people's money. Robert Dibley can spend my money easier than he can spend his own money. <laughs> it is human nature. So look, we know what waste is. Waste is leaving the lights on. Waste is paying too much for, you know, a contract. You know what I mean? It, it's, we know what waste is. Fraud is different than that. Fraud, fraud is, um, there's an element of intentionality to fraud. A manipulation for personal gain. And abuse is different than that altogether. I would argue that abuse is the misuse of delegated power to a bad end. So what we've been focusing on at the subcommittee level for the past few hearings is going after the IRS, who just doesn't disappoint, I might add. It is helpful when people on the other side of the witness table play to type every single time. So we're going after the, 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 the targeting at the IRS, and particularly, I just want to give you a, a, an insight into one of these particular cases, and we can talk further about other work of the committee, but just to give you an insight, I'm going to describe a fact pattern to you, and when you hear the fact pattern, you're going to say to yourself, okay, tell me the other side of the story. Give me the other, give me the other perspective. And I'm telling you, there's no other perspective. <laughs> so this is what happens. There's a couple Mr. and Mrs. Sowers. They're dairy farmers in Maryland. They've been doing this for decades. They get in, into a little bit of a cash business. They're doing the weekend farmer's market stuff. And so they have cash, and they deposit cash into their bank. Federal law says that if you, uh, that, a that a bank has a reporting requirement, if there's a $10,000 or higher deposit, the bank has an obligation to report that. Mr. and Mrs. Sowers come in with amounts in and around that. The bank says, hey, it's a big hassle when you come in with 10 grand. Can you come in with less than that? And this nice couple says, yeah, sure, we can handle that. That's against the law. That element of saying, I'm going to structure my accounts or structure my deposits so as to avoid a reporting requirement is against the law. Now, the law itself was designed to go after Mr. White in Breaking Bad, <laughs> a human trafficking operation, a mafia front group. The law was not designed to go after Mr. and Mrs. Sowers who were milking cows in rural Maryland and doing nothing else wrong. And yet the IRS comes in and seizes their assets. No notice, no phone call, no knock on the door. They seize their assets. So Mr. and Mrs. Sowers feel like, hey, I'm stuck in a Kafka novel here. I don't know what's going on. They can't get straight answers. And to make matters worse, the IRS refers it to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice really puts the hammer down on these people. The Department of Justice lawyer says to Mr. and Mrs. Sowers' lawyer, we may make this a criminal referral, not a civil case that it was at the beginning. We may refer this on a criminal basis. The lawyer writes back, says, why would you do that? The DOJ lawyer says, because your clients talked to the press. Now marinate in that for a second. The Department of Justice is jerking these people around because they're asserting their First Amendment right. That is abuse. 
that is, if it's systemic, that borders on tyranny. So what we're doing at the committee is we're going after that. So we had a hearing. We brought in the IRS commissioner. We invited him to tell us about their testimony or about their approach on this. I told him, you're like, you're Inspector Javert in Les Mis. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> Nobody likes Inspector Javert, and it doesn't end well for Inspector Javert. <laughs> so it was very interesting. He comes in, and I'll just give you a quick, quick snapshot. He comes in, and he gives us his testimony, which you could all write. You know exactly how this goes. Said, Mr. Uh, Commissioner, you know the testimony of these witnesses that are going to be coming right after you, Mr. and Mrs. Sowers, and a couple of these other cases. Would you, be, you know, in light of what happened, would you like, on behalf of the Internal Revenue Service, to apologize to them? And he said, Well, listen, I don't exactly know their stories. I said, You know their stories. <laughs> and in light of those stories, would you like to apologize on behalf of the Internal Revenue Service? That second answer he gave me was a complete non answer. But I learned, lower the wattage, and the third time's the charm. Commissioner, the Internal Revenue Service reached out and grabbed these people by the throat and choked them till they nearly died. Would you like to apologize today <laughs> on, the Internal Revenue by, on behalf of the Internal Revenue Service? And he said, I'm really sorry this happened to anybody. Now. That and a couple bucks will get you a cup of coffee. I know that. But it's a disposition and it's an attitude that we're trying to, to push. So there's a lot of things that we can be doing and that we are doing on these different areas. Things on Medicare in particular, on the fraud side. Now, this, this is like a Seinfeld episode. It all comes together because it helps our committee develop... Um, develop some sort of uh, goodwill and capacity to lead the rest of our conference on difficult things as it relates to tax reform. Because when tax reform comes, our committee is going to be in a position to go to our conference and say, here's what we got to do. And there's some difficult places we need to go. And in light of the work that we've done on these other areas, it's my hope and my expectation that the oversight subcommittee will not only be doing the work that we ought to be doing from an oversight point of view, but at a committee point of view, we will be acquiring goodwill on behalf of the rest of our, the rest of our conference and the American people. So it's a very interesting season. I, I, um, I thoroughly enjoy it. I think that there's a lot to do, and there's great opportunity all the way around. So with that, why don't we, uh, why don't I yield at the first time Jim Conzelman looked at his watch. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, Linda Evans, you did such a great job with oh, your intros. You could either have the first or the last question. I will take the first. Well, mostly a comment, uh, a thank you to Congressman Bustani for the innovation box, because I think you're protecting the competitive edge of the U.S. Uh, country because we do need an innovation, we always have, and I, I get the sense that some of the actions around the world are basically protectionism in disguise. So to the extent that we're going to move forward on an innovation box, maybe which countries already have, particularly in Europe, thank you for that. Well, thanks. Uh, it's easy to say that the United States wants to write the rules. It's much harder to do that. And our country was very successful in setting up this international system uh, post-1945, but uh, it's gotten competitive, 
and others want to do it. This is going to take some very good policy ideas coming out of the United States that we can sell to the other countries uh, to, to create the right kind of framework. And that means a vigorous economic diplomacy, which is missing right now. It, it seems to be all siloed. You know, it's, it's dealing with regulatory issues, trade representatives dealing with you know, trade issues, opening markets. We need to coordinate this effort much better. And it needs to be uh, knowing what the end goal is. And the end goal is open markets, you know, flow of data, flow of uh, uh, you know, goods and services, and, um, and knocking down barriers. I mean, our, our tech companies, as they're working through just in Europe alone, uh, you know, we, we've got the tax disadvantage. Uh, we've got the, this proliferation of new regulatory um, uh, regimes that are really threatening our, our most innovative companies. And uh, it's going to take a lot of creative work and coordinated work. Congress has to play a major role in that. We need to be the incubators of policy working with, with you know, this administration and the next to drive this. And it's going to take that kind of coordination. Go ahead, Ralph. Yeah, I, uh, your comments earlier about the, the highway and the corporate tax maybe um, gives a sense of what the committee is looking at. It seems to me that uh, if you if the chairman doesn't want to do a user fee or a gas tax, you have to find 100, 150 billion dollars out of the business community to to, to pay for. A highway bill before you even get to the point where you can use loss of deductions and trimming and all that stuff to lower rates. What what are the dynamics and do, is the committee really just completely opposed to doing something on on user fees? I'm just curious where you think what well, the thinking is. We have not had a hearing on this in quite a while. First off, and uh, a number of us have been speaking uh, among ourselves to move the committee in the direction of let's start from scratch and have a hearing to get public information out there. Jim Renacci has been a leader on this issue. Uh, and I really, Jim, I, I really appreciate uh, the driving force you brought to the table on this issue. It's my view, and I mentioned this earlier, my view is that if we're going to solve the highway issue, and I think most, most folks back home want us to do this, it's got to be a sustainable user fee system. And the problem we have is the gasoline tax, as it's constructed today, doesn't meet that requirement because we're seeing such a gap developing between the demand and the revenue that's being generated. We have alternative fuels, electrical cars, and so forth. That's not captured in that equation. My fear is that Congress, as it is so apt to do, has run off, you know, to latch on the most easy, convenient concept without thinking through the consequences. And that concept is to take repatriated funds if we get tax, some kind of international tax reform done, take that repatriated money and just dump it into the highway trust fund. I don't think that's good policy. That's my opinion. I think some of us probably share that, that, um, that same view. I think we should start with hearings. We should look at all the options that are out there, get the best ideas, and start developing uh, a reasonable approach to this. Uh, my fear is that leadership's looking for an easy solution in the, uh, to this. They've latched on to the re repatriation. It may or may not be doable. And if, it, and if it's doable uh, from a, you know, moving the policy, then I don't think we have a, we have a sustainable revenue source. We're going to be back in the same place. I think whenever we do an international tax, it ought to be done in the, in, with the idea of tax reform, lowering rates, simplification, and all the things that we've, we've talked about. I want to keep those separate, and I hope we can drive that narrative. 
Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, you've talked about the patent box, and it's, you know, all of a sudden become the issue du jour in the last several months. Uh, but it's very expensive to fix. Is there any discussion about how to pay for that? We're working on all that right now. Uh, that's something that uh, my office is working very closely with the committee and uh, with Richie Neal's office. We've had some uh, discussions with Treasury, uh, with Bob Stack and Danielle Rolfus. And, um, I think the first step is to get the policy right, and then we're going to look at the scoring, and then we'll look at the dynamic aspects of this as well. And one of the things I want to make sure that we're doing uh, as joint tax looks at this is to take into account what's happened internationally and the impact on revenue. I mean, clearly, what's happened over the last 10 years with inversions and what's happening with acquisitions uh, and, and, and the overall competitive environment is having an impact on corporate tax revenue. And so we need to look at that in, a, in that kind of a broad context if we're going to get to reasonable reform. But I think first and foremost, let's get the policy right. You know, there's an interesting dynamic, too, that's underway, and that is tax reform is going to happen. And I think it's going to happen for a couple of reasons. The first is there's nobody that can defend the status quo. There, there's no voice out there that says, oh, it's great, just leave it alone. Inversions are going to continue to happen. And then when we were doing polling and focus groups in the camp draft, it was a very interesting thing. When you put sort of 20, 20 folks around the table and you ask them what their view is of tax reform, I, I would have assumed they would have come in with, with a predisposition on some of these things. But by and large, the takeaway was, look, show me the totality of your proposal and I'm willing to evaluate it on the merits, and I don't come in with a preconceived idea of what I need. So there's a lot of freedom there to, to, to think creatively, as Charles has articulated. The challenge right now is we don't have a partner in the White House. I called James Baker of James Baker fame um, <laughs> a few years ago when, when the tax reform discussion was, was really underway, and I said, look, you were the key person in 1986 would you please give me your, your insight? And he was really generous with his time and, and gave me a lot of time. But at the end, he said, now, Peter, remember, um, this was Ronald Reagan's number one domestic priority of his second term. He used everything he had as Ronald Reagan. He used everything he had at Treasury, everything we had at the White House. We had bipartisan, bicameral, powerful advocates on Capitol Hill, but it collapsed three times and almost didn't happen. So there's, you know, the House, I think, can be a, a really significant dance partner. We can be a great dance partner. But the White House has to, to Charles's earlier point, you need that leadership coming out of the White House. And where it becomes difficult right now is in terms of worldview, we're sort, it's sort of Mars and Venus in terms of the House majority, obviously, on tax policy and the White House. So the question is, is there a possibility of, of finding some level of common ground based on the urgency of things that are around us? And the White House has not demonstrated a capacity to be nimble. So look at TPA. TPA argument, there's a real irony there in the TPA discussion. So for years, President Obama has been arguing a zero-sum game element of the economy. That is, going to his base and saying, if this group is successful, it's because they took it from you. That was the subtext of the entire 2012 campaign. You're stuck in your station in life, and the only way you get out of your station in life is not innovation, it's not hard work, it's none of those things. It's a federal program that's going to pull your cheese out of the fire. That's, that's the way it's going to work. <laughs> 
and they believed it. And so now in the, in the TPA debate, he's, he, that's not the argument, because it's not true. And so in the TPA debate, he's now saying, no, 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 listen, this is great when we lower these barriers, we've got this commerce, and, and the economy grows. But the problem was, he was a good teacher, and he persuaded his base. And now they're willing to trust him, think about it, they're willing to trust him on everything else, including the Iranians, but they won't trust him as far as they can throw him on taxes. So the White House has marginalized itself largely on a lot of these debates, not the least of which is trust on the House side. So, you know, I'm, I'm here saying if it were easy, anybody can do it. I, I accept that. But the nature of this challenge is, is incredibly significant. But the urgency um, is here, too. These deadlines are real. So I... I um, I'm very much in the stay tuned mode, but I'm I'm not here pumping sunshine, telling you that this is um, you know the Peter Roskam three points to a happy tax life. I think it's going to be a slow, slow road. Paul, so uh, so a lot of us have sort of uh, in the room have locked arms and pushed for business reform. I think many of us who have come to the same conclusion that maybe I'll make progress on international reform, but sort of the broader package is, is going to be bridge too far. What do you need from the business community? Well, uh, I think, first of all, we need to keep this discussion going, keep it alive. We need uh, to dig further down into the technical details. Uh, we'll figure out how do we get, how far we can go politically. You know, We need to sit, set up a series of tests with the administration to see what they're willing to do. I mean, that's going to be the great limiting factor in getting the tax bill done. Uh, if the administration won't talk about anything, then this is going to wait until after the presidential. I think the second element is um, with the looming presidential election, we need, we're working internally as a committee to get a good draft of tax policy together uh, that we could uh, hopefully use as a comprehensive tax reform package so that we can hand deliver it to our nominee when the time comes. That way you avoid the problems that we saw in the last presidential campaign where you had a you know, tax policy that was put out there that was thought up, kind of poll tested, but it had a lot of holes in it. We need to get good policy and have our nominee embrace it uh, with the idea that the, the likely prospect for tax reform is 2017 or, or you know, shortly after that. But I think, um, meantime, we're not going to let up. We have to continue to test the administration. I think uh, the sense of urgency on the international piece is, is ratcheting up because of what's happening with BEPS. And um, you know we need to use that, but use it in a constructive way uh, to see if we can get some buy-in. That's why what I, I've kept working on this uh, when we entered this year. I didn't want to let up on it, even though we had a lot of other things going on, because I, I, was, I was kind of feeling that sense of urgency with BEPS. And, uh, my, my position was, let's keep working on the policy. Let's get the policy. Let me see if I can recruit a, a respected Democrat on the committee to work with me on it, which we've been able to do with Richie Neal. Let's see if we can attract the attention of Treasury. We've done that. Uh, in fact, I was down in um, Florida, uh, West Palm Beach, at a tax event, and I spoke one morning. Uh, and it just so happened that a senior official from Treasury was in the audience. And... I made the comment that it, I did not think the administration would work with us at all, and realistically, tax reform is dead until 2017. I didn't know she was in the audience. She approached me afterwards and said, I was very disappointed in what you, you said. And uh, I said, well, you, you haven't given us any signals 
to give us uh, the indication that you're interested. And she said, well, all you have to do is ask. I said, well, I'm asking now. Show us what you, you want to do. Roll up your sleeves. Let's do what Baker, Baker did with, the, uh, with Congress back in 86. And so now we've got their interest. I, I, you know, they, they're coming in. I don't know where it will go, but I'm going to test it to the limits. You mentioned uh, TPA. Where do you see the trade debate going this week and, and the longer term? Um, whether you know, TPA is going to be successful and where we're going to be on, uh, on all the trade issues we're working on? I think it will be successful. I think when all the dust settles, um, the, the president is still the president and he's able to, if he chooses, have influence over his party. He's, he's got a, um, he, he needs to do everything that, that he can do. There are a number of House Republicans um, who, you know, despite their feelings about President Obama, are now coming to the point where they, they're recognizing this is a good vote. And so I think when it all comes down to it, there will be, um, we will be successful in getting TPA um, on the President's desk. I think it will, it will pass with 218 votes. Um, and you'll want to leave that thing open for about five minutes and bang that gavel as quick as you can. Um, so, but I, I, I think it'll all get done when, when it comes down to it. What are the arguments that you're hearing at home, either for or against TPA? So I'm from suburban Chicago, and I represent normal people. Uh, so my constituency is filled with Midwesterners who are delightful and charming and interesting and um, take a long view, are conservative, but they, you know what I'm saying, I love my people. So my constituency has, uh, is, is, has a, is forward leaning on trade, so lots of manufacturers that are selling to you know, the caterpillars and so forth. A lot of tool and die folks in and around my constituency, they're selling into those areas. Um, lots of transportation in and through Chicago and the Gary Port and so forth. Now, not everybody, not every, you know, there's not unanimity, obviously, and there is a, there is a loss of, um, there, is, there is a zero-sum game feeling. Let me give you one anecdote, because it, it'll come in on, Paul asked, what else? What can we ask from the business community? Let me just give you a quick, quick observation. I do these things called telephone town halls, where I'll have 10,000 constituents on the phone, a Q&A session. One particular call, this is a number of years ago, really got my attention. Dave from Elmhurst, Illinois, gets on the call, and he says, Congressman, what are you doing about jobs getting sh uh, shipped overseas? So uh, the way to do these calls is you let Dave talk for a while. Turns out, Dave worked for Federal Signal Corporation. He was an accountant. Turns out, I have a mind for useless information, and I had been at Federal Signal six months before. And you know the PowerPoint presentations where you're just begging for mercy in the boardroom? Like, oh, wow, plant factory, fantastic. Um, so one of the things that I happen to remember was 40% of Federal Signal's bottom line at the time was for sales overseas. So think about it. Dave, the accountant, who's counting the money that Federal Signal is making overseas, is talking to me about the possibility of his job getting shipped overseas. This is so messed up at so many levels, I can hardly see straight. Dave, I said, Dave, you should be asking me a different question. 
I said, the only reason they need you is because of the money they're making overseas, and you should be asking me, what am I doing to lower barriers so your company can sell more and you can count more? That's the question. <laughs> now, you've got employees at companies that you work for that if we were to go in and do a town hall meeting and ask the trade question, even though it is in their direct interest, they think that the company is selling them out by doing these activities overseas. They think that their job is gonna get shipped overseas. Why is that possible? I'll tell you why it's possible. Because for years, public companies in particular, God bless them, have been listening to general counsels, whose job it is to say no, and HR people, who I don't even know what they do, uh, all of whom create this culture that say, hey, we don't wanna talk about issues, we don't wanna talk about anything. The best exception of this it's Caterpillar. They're fantastic. Caterpillar can, has completely convinced all of their employees that trade is in their interest and they can light the lamp and really get it done. So Paul, in answer to your question, if the business community can change the culture within the business community that says we're going to substantively engage, not the C-suites, but we're going to substantively engage, substantively engage further on down throughout the company, so that you've got an entire operation operating and, and articulating and advocating within its, with its best interest in mind, that can be transformational. So that's gotta happen. We'll, we'll get the trade thing done. We'll get TPA done, I predict. But the trade deals, we'll need, we'll need help on that. We'll need help on tax reform, breaking out of the zero-sum game. And the squeamishness and the the just the uptightness that I sense in all these companies of like, hey, you know, we don't want to get into donkeys and elephants. I get it. Don't get into donkeys and elephants. But articulate capitalist, pro-market, pro-growth policies, and I have seen just a cavernous drop-off from what could be super, super influential to sort of de minimis influence at the grassroots level. If I could add, Peter really laid this whole thing out really well, but. Uh, Based on a number of conversations I've had with CEOs of very large companies, all the way down to smaller companies that are part of the supply chain, uh, the business community writ large is not doing a very good job of selling trade, and this is a real problem. We're getting we're getting beat really badly by the anti-trade elements who have a very organized grassroots effort in every single congressional district. Simple thing the business community could do: the head of every business could. Uh, when, the, when a paycheck comes out, however often, if it's every two weeks or every month or whatever it is, a percentage of that paycheck coming from international commerce. Every employee in every company that has anything to do with the supply chain or what's happening um, in global commerce, needs to, those employees need to know what percentage of their paycheck is coming from international commerce. That's simple. And if we do that, we will never have a fight on trade policy again. Dave Reichert was at the Port of Seattle, and he engaged with some of the longshoremen. And Dave asked him the question, so what do you guys think about this TPP and TPA stuff? Oh, we're against it. We can't, you know, this is horrible. And Dave said, well, where, where are you getting the information? Well, our, our union bosses and our brothers in the union have said this is bad for all of us. Dave said, well, how much of your paycheck comes from the stuff coming in and out of here? I said, 
Dave said, well, my God, you're for trade. You know, you won't have a paycheck if you don't, we don't have international trade. And these guys said, well, yeah, you know, you're right about that. That's the kind of conversation we have to have at the grassroots level. And who better to do it than the guy who's signing the checks for all those employees to let them know where their money's coming from? And to Charles's point, that attitude is not limited to longshoremen. No, I'm talking about employees <laughs> That's right. across the board. That's right. So let's not kid ourselves. Last question. Ooh, got it all, huh? Last chance. All right, go ahead. No one else is going to ask. I wanted to, you got an apology out of the IRS commissioner. What did you get out of the Justice Department? The Justice Department, interesting. So John Lewis and I, who's my ranking member, we wrote a letter to DOJ um, bringing this to their attention, the, the, the aggressive nature. Um, and DOJ wrote back just within the past couple of weeks, and they said, we are going to open a full investigation. There were a couple of these cases, and there's no defending it. Um, so I think we're making some really, really significant progress. Peter's awesome. I, I served as chairman of that subcommittee for four years. I went through four IRS commissioners, and I never could get an apology. 